Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, this is our first episode of 2022, and that means it's that time of year when everyone decides to eat better, exercise more, maybe learn a new language, or even write our own biography. Yes, New Year's resolutions are everywhere for now. Now give it a few months and they're often a thing of the past. The reality is though, especially when it comes to habits around our lifestyle, that many of these things we hope to ingrain like eating better, exercising, drinking water, or going to bed on time are really good for us. So why do we sabotage our own best intentions and how can we eliminate procrastination from our lives for good? Well, today we have Dr. Tim Pitchell, who's a professor at Carleton University and author of the books, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle and Procrastination Health and Wellbeing. His work is based on current physiological research and rooted in clear strategies for change. He'll walk us through how we can disrupt self-destructive ideas and habits and move into freedom and accomplishment. We met recently at a conference, so I couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask him to join us on the show. Thankfully, he agreed, and we had a great chat with lots of interesting concepts for us to apply. So let's get to it. Hi, Dr. Pitchell. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Michael. Please call me Tim. No problem at all, Tim. Same thing. Call me Mike. We met recently at a conference, and since then, I've been diving into your work, and you have such interesting work. You've written several books, and you are a professor, and you study the field of procrastination. What is procrastination? Well, it's a form of delay, and that's really important that, you know, delay is part of our lives. We use our practical reason to decide all things considered, what should I do? And if you do one thing, other things will have to wait. So delay is part of life. But procrastination, we define it this way in psychology. It's the voluntary delay of an intended act. So you had to have some, some sort of intention. And this is the key thing, the voluntary delay of an intended act despite expecting to be worse off for the delay. It is by definition negative because you're recognizing that I made this intention to do something, let's say at 10 o'clock today, but I start to sing the procrastinator song. I don't want to, I don't feel like it. I'll feel more like it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. and, and at that point that we've really captured procrastination. A good friend of mine, a philosopher at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, he summarizes that as culpably unwarranted delay. So we're culpable because the delay has no reason behind it, except so much as I don't want to do it. That's right. And we're going to get really into that today. But why do we feel like this long-term benefit is worth this avoiding a short-term discomfort? And that's that really is what popped out in your research for me. You know, we have limited time in life. How <laughs> much time do we actually spend procrastinating versus doing things that might make our life better? Oh, that's huge. You know, you've you've jumped to something that's so important so quickly. Very few people do that. And that it's a deeply existential issue. There's a new uh, wonderful little book out about time management called 4000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. And really, he tries to take off the table the notion of being more productive to be, you know, an uber productivity geek, which this author was. And instead, we have to grasp the fact that life is limited. And I think that's why in every major world religion, there's this notion of the sin of sloth, right? That the, the precious gift we have is time and it's non-renewable. We can't make more of it and we don't get it back. And so it's not a matter of being uh, necessarily a better employee and making more widgets, you know, the way we thought of it during the industrial revolution. It's more of, am I going to follow through on my intentions because I want to live the life I want to live? And I think it's important listeners think about that from the beginning. This is not 
a productivity interview. This is an, an interview about how do I get what I want out of life? How do I really invest myself in life? How in the world do I end up showing up? That's right. And that's why this is such a great fit for what we do here, because the whole point of this broadcast is to really provide people with the tools that they can use to have that balance in their life. And, and sometimes it goes against the diet and exercise culture and, and some of the things we think we should do when really they're not benefiting us as a person. Like, here's an example, though, because people will uh, avoid uh, even learning about how to avoid procrastinating. One of the quotes <laughs> I saw on the review of an article that you gave one time, and it was fantastic. And this woman obviously understood what you were saying. She said, what does it say about me that I don't even want to read an article because I don't want to learn something that will help me stop procrastinating because that might result in me doing things I don't feel like doing right now. You yes, know, it's what? wonderful. <laughs> Can yeah, you explain just, that? Yeah. Well, we call it, we often tongue in cheek call it second order procrastination, right? <laughs> Putting off the very thing that we know is going to help us. But, you know, when you mentioned uh, you know, exercise, for example, it, well, that's just a fundamental great health habit. It, it fuels our well being. Uh, now, getting into it can feel like a very uphill battle, but once we establish that habit, it's hard to imagine living without it. Now, mm -hmm. when you're not into it, of course, you can. it's hard to imagine wanting to exercise, but there are many things that are very good for us, whether it be mindfulness meditation, something I hope we'll talk about later too. Mm -hmm. you know, these are daily practices, and that's the key idea, daily practices that really make our life better. Mm. I think that, you know, these are things we need to be reminded of too. Literally, since we started talking, I have been better because it's been top of mind. But, you know, before we get that awareness, we think procrastination is our friend. Why mm. do we think it's good for us to put things off? Well, we like to turn a vice into a virtue. I mean, it's pretty human nature that we want to feel good now. Uh, that's <laughs> really simple psychology. It, it's better not to have negative emotions. And so we're always finding a way to weasel out of things that make us feel bad. So let's say you face a task and you experience emotions like boredom or frustration or resentment or anxiety, maybe you downright fear. You pick, there's others that could be there, all negative emotions. And we learned very early in life that if we avoid the task, we can avoid the emotion, at least in the short term. Present self always benefits. And there's some wonderful research that Hal Hirschfield done at UCLA has done. And we've uh, picked up at our own uh, research group that looks at this discrepancy between present self and future self. But in any case, we're giving in to feel good is what's happening there. We're using avoidance as a coping mechanism, but there's much more productive ways to cope. Ironically, yes, you might feel good at the second, but what does it feel like when you get things done? Because for me, when I finally get that to-do list done, I feel amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes, although it's it got to be careful as a slippery slope to say, get that to-do list done. Right now, I would ah. just say getting a single task done, even a little bit of progress on a goal fuels our well-being. So I want to guard against this notion that we're going to go from zero to 100, right? Mm -hmm. And instead, we're going to make these baby steps in the right direction. That's true in all aspects of our lives. So even making progress on one task that we've been putting off, if that is an outcome of your listening today, that will be really a wonderful thing because you're moving in the direction you want to be in. Right? That's what life is. And we have to guard against perfectionism because... Uh you know, think about Leonard Cohen, our wonderful poet, singer in Canada. He died back in 2016, unfortunately. Yeah. But many people will remember his lyrics. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. 
And that's a really important thing to remember as we start to struggle to make change in our lives, that the perfect can be the enemy of all of this, right? We're, again, just trying to live up to uh, on other people's unrealistic expectations that we've internalized, right? And they're not even real. They're just in our own minds. But I don't want to digress too far there, but you're absolutely right. We, And this is what fascinated me about procrastination. That's why I started to study it. I was actually, my research was all around goal pursuit and well-being. Huh. But what reared its ugly head there was I could predict people's well-being if I knew the goals they said they were going to do and never did. We become our own worst enemy. And that's what I've been struggling to understand. Why is it we could become our own worst enemy with procrastination? One of the things I thought was a cool concept, and that is a term called time travel. Can you explain that to me? Well, the time travel has an inherent in it, this notion that there's a present self, how are we feeling right now? Mm -hmm. And there's future self. And you can put future self anywhere you want. Uh, In my own presentations, I often use a cartoon with Homer Simpson in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I justify that because uh, Richard Taylor, who won the Nobel Prize in economics back in 2017 from the University of Chicago, he argues that, you know, we're more like Homer Simpson than we are homo economicus. We're not all that <laughs> rational. So I said, oh, that's such a gift to me because I like to show cartoons of Homer because he really captures that irrationality. And so Marge <laughs> and Homer are talking and Marge, if you don't know about Homer Simpson, just know that he's the world's worst dad. He's, he's certainly <laughs> vying for that title. In any case, Marge, his wife says, you know, homie, someday these kids are going to be gone and you're going to regret not spending more time with them. And Homer says, yeah, that's a future a problem for future Homer. Man, I don't envy that guy. Right? So he, <laughs> he, he just gets it. And so this notion of time travel is to trying to bridge that gap. And in a sense, Homer did a bit of that, right? He says, I don't envy that guy. For a moment, he time travels. He thinks, yeah, I, I don't want to be that guy. But in our own lives, we, well, I can tell you that one of my graduate students, Eve-Marie Blouin-Houdon, Uh, did a wonderful study where she used a guided meditation for students to think about themselves later in the term. And she did this really well-crafted. She did it in the first person and the third person. And for her control group in this experimental study, she actually used mindfulness meditation, which is a really stringent control group because we would expect mindfulness meditation might help reduce procrastination anyhow. But the group we're focusing on right now is this group that did this time travel. In other words, They use this guided meditation to think about themselves at the end of term. Mm. And what she found is that those people who thought about themselves later did this time travel, develop more empathy for future self. And that empathy was related to a reduction in procrastination. So time travel is what it sounds like. I have to think about, okay, it's Tuesday night and I don't want to do my work or I don't want to do my workout. You pick your favorite (laughs) task you want to avoid. And then you think, yeah, but, Am I really going to want to do it tomorrow? Does Friday night, Tim, want to be struggling to get this done before the weekend? No. And and that can provide a little bit of motivation for me to make a different choice. Now, there's other layers in there that we might want to talk about, but that's time travel, Mike. That's Dr. Tim Pitchell, professor at Carleton University and author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. He's helping us take the first step to a healthier lifestyle by not putting off that healthy habit for another day. We'll be right back after the break. 
Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Tim Pitchell, professor and founder of the Procrastination Group at Carleton University and the author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. He's helping us take the first step to a healthier lifestyle by not putting off that healthy habit for another day. So that empathy towards how you're going to feel in the future, does that link itself to things like self-esteem and self-care? Yeah, big time. But then I think what we have to do is back up just a little bit because the question becomes, so why do we not think about future self? Mm. And so let's do a little bit of neuroscience here and we can complicate it more if you want. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, many people will recognize that there's parts of our brain that process emotions. And if we want to label parts like that, we'd say the amygdala, part of the limbic system, is involved in uh, encoding emotion, whether that be with the hippocampus when we're learning, or most of us will remember this notion of fight or flight. That's that amygdala just screaming, run or fight, right? And, and when that happens, when our amygdala responds strongly, it, it really takes over. We call it the amygdala hijack. And, and remember, we're just talking in broad terms in, in terms of a modular brain. But the key thing is here that we're saying, yeah, our emotions are taking over. And what that does is it downregulates our thinking ability. Now, neuroscien neuroscientists might tell us, yeah, that's your prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain that's responsible for things we say are executive functions, such as planning and organization and inhibiting impulses and stuff like that. So when we get this a strong emotional response, it shuts down our ability to think and so where's the time traveling happening? It's not going to happen at all because everything's focused on the present and feeling good now. And so that's a really part of the important part of the picture uh, or the story because we have to understand, well, so why is it that I end up procrastinating? Well, we would argue that it's about this giving in to feel good. It's about mood repair. And so in some ways we can say it's sort of uh, responding to this emotional or amygdala hijack. You, you took the words out of my mouth because I was going to talk about the fight or flight response, but you just talked about mood repair theory. And I read a New York Times article that you gave on that. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, good. Uh, but I like the, the, the naturalness of a conversation like this. And I think listeners will find it easier, too, as we put all the pieces together. Mm -hmm. Well, let me back it up even further and say, you know, a lot of people, when they think of procrastination, they say, oh, that's just a time management problem, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, no. I, I think that if most of you think about it, you'll say to yourself, oh, uh, OK, tomorrow morning after breakfast, and that's in the best of worlds, you'll say something that specific. You might just say, tomorrow morning, I'm going to work on that report. Or tomorrow morning, I'm going to clean that garage. And then tomorrow morning comes and you've heard me sing the procrastinator song already. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. And and what's happening there? Well, see, it's not about time management anymore because you've, you've got the time blocked off. You're saying, yeah, it's, this is when I said I was going to do it. But what's happening is that you're, you're having these negative emotions associated with that task. Like you look at that garage and you go, oh my God, that's overwhelming. Where am I going to start? We look at the report and think, I could never do it as well as everyone expects me to. There's that perfectionism creeping in. But all of it is, is just feeding these negative emotions or a negative mood. And, and we won't tease apart these words. It's not necessary. Let's just say that we just don't feel very good. We're feeling negative about things. And so what is procrastination? It's that avoidant response to get rid of that negative stimulus. And that is powerfully rewarding. Like Skinner taught us this, that, for example, if you go outside, I know you don't use umbrellas in Newfoundland because they just get turned inside out. But, <laughs> so we'll put a slicker on instead. Okay, you go outside, it's pouring rain, and you put on a, a raincoat or a slicker. And of course, now you're not getting wet. Well, that's 
called negative reinforcement. You got rid of a negative stimulus. Well, that's what's happening with procrastination. You put off the task and it's powerfully rewarding because now I feel better, right? Uh, and what's interesting psychologically is Dan Gilbert from Harvard University, mm -hmm. amongst the many brilliant things he's done, he's shown us that when we try to predict how we're gonna feel in the future, we use how we feel at the present. So if I've just put a task off, how do you feel? Well, I at least feel relief. I probably feel pretty good because I didn't want to clean the garage anyhow. Mm -hmm. And so, so if you're feeling pretty good and then you're, you're trying to predict, how am I going to feel tomorrow when I face that task? Well, I'm going to feel good, right? That's, we're predictably irrational. That's what the behavioral economists like to call it. So that mood repair model is just that it's not a time management issue, this procrastination thing. It's that we're trying to feel good in the short term. We're trying to repair our mood. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it brings us to really what I want to focus on next, which is the mindfulness side. When we're in that stress response, which is really bad for our body, mind you, for a chronic period of time, we breathe, we calm it down. And I think, is this where the idea of your most recent book, which was called Procrastination, Health and Wellbeing, is that where that sort of came into play? Because I could see how that chronic level of stress could lead to health risks. Sure. And in doing that, I'm standing on a lot of other people's shoulders. I really need to acknowledge first and foremost was my co-editor of that book, Fuchsia Sirwa. She's at the University of Sheffield. When she was a student at Carleton University, she did her PhD in health psychology. And she'd taken a seminar with me on teaching and she'd learned about my procrastination research and said, we should team up and do some research. And I said, that would be great. This is back in the late nineties. And there had been an early paper on health and procrastination done by Roy Baumeister and Diane Tice, but it was radical. They found that if you procrastinated more, you had worse health, but she, there was no theory behind it. Mm. And so Fuchsia just grabbed that and she's been running with it now for a couple of decades. And so she is the person who's done most of this research that I'm going to talk about. Mm -hmm. And the other people's shoulders I'm standing on are those people who do work on emotion regulation, like James Gross, and in particular, Matthias Birking in Germany. Uh, because he he lays out a whole uh, background on affect regulation training. And see, this is really crucial. So to back it up a little bit now that I've done that really academic thing. So if your listeners, if you're choking on that, let it go. Right? It's just, it's, it's something I need to do because this is not the world as Tim Pitchell sees it. This is the world as a group of scientists see it. And, and we need each other, right? We're in community. Mm -hmm. So I, I look at what's happening with procrastination and, and I say, yeah, we're having this fight or actually we're having a flight response. So how can we get past this? How, what do we do when we have the amygdala hijack? Well, as Matthias Birking says, the very first step is to physically calm down, right? Whether it be muscle relaxation or better yet, I, I prefer just a few good deep breaths. Uh, now, if you do more of that, you end up doing some mindfulness meditation, we'll get there. But even just doing a few good deep breaths just calms your nervous system down. Because if physically, physically you're all wired up, your, your brain, and in this case, we'll say your amygdala again, if we take this modular approach, is watching your body going, holy mackerel, something's really happening out there. Because remember, your brain is like a brain in a vat. It's just looking for input. And the input it's getting right now is, wow, things are really happening. This body's upset. I better jack this up a little higher. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that's a positive feedback loop that's leading you in a bad way. If you calm yourself down, then you can bring online again your ability to think more clearly and say, what could I do else instead? So let's say I'm facing a task that's overwhelming me for whatever reason, right? It could be resentment, boredom. I've given you a number of these, anxiety. 
And so I, I start by doing some deep breathing, you know, just nice, slow. Even that, just that one breath, you could even hear it in my voice now, can't you? Like, mm-hmm. cause you and I are excited about this topic and I get out a roll and I start to speed up speaking, but I do a two or three breaths and I'm just like calming down. It's just a physiological response. But this next thing is really important. There's a author by the name of Parker Palmer, who was a real biblio mentor for me as a teacher. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book for any listeners who are teachers. It's called The Courage to Teach. Paul Tillich in the 1950s was a theologian who wrote The Courage to Be. And uh, actually, uh, Parker Palmer is a Quaker, so he has some deep spiritual roots here. And that's why I think he took that title, The Courage to Teach. But in this book, he has this wonderful statement because he talks about the fear that's inherent in universities. Students have fear, professors have fear. And he said, you know, I can have fear or feelings, but I don't have to be my fear or feelings because I can come from other places in my inner landscape. And that's a personal mantra that I'm gonna pair with one others. And I'm gonna repeat that. I can have feelings, I don't need to be my feelings. And that's at the heart of mindfulness, right? That when we do mindfulness, we we might focus on our breath, for example, and thoughts come and go, that notion of uh, monkey mind that the Buddhists talk about. But I recognize that, yeah, they're just thoughts. They're just emotions. I can have them. I don't need to be them. And then add on to that this simple statement that actually comes out of the productivity literature. And we saw clearly in our own research that getting started was everything. But it's David Allen, who wrote the book, Getting Things Done, who who coined this beautiful sentence or question. What's the next action? And that is life-changing. It has been in my life in terms of beating procrastination. Because not only first I have to calm down, then I have to say, what's the next action? And keep that action as small as possible. Actually, the next step, like let's say I'm facing a task I really want to do, a longer report or a letter of reference for a student, which can be for me really high stakes for the student and you got to do a good job of it. You pick your favorite task or least favorite task. And it might come down to, well, I need to open my laptop and just read that email to see what's required of me. I can read the email. I'm not writing the report. I'm just opening my laptop. But you see, once we've begun, we've crossed the boundary between running away and engaging. And on very bad days, I ask that question over and over again. What's the next action? What's the next action? Keeping it tiny, tiny little action. Because a little progress on our goal fuels our well-being. I said that once before. Basic social psychological research has shown us that. It's one of the few upward spirals. And so mindfulness meditation If you take that as a practice, that will really build into you the ability to quickly bring your attention where you want to. But Mm -hmm. without even any serious training, you can just take a few breaths and calm down and then say, I can have this emotion. I don't need to be this emotion. What's the next action? You're well on your way to changing procrastination if it's a problem for you. That's Dr. Tim Pitchell, professor at Carleton University and author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. He's helping us take the first step to a healthier lifestyle by not putting off that healthy habit for another day. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Tim Pitchell, professor and founder of the Procrastination Group at Carleton University and the author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. He's helping us take the first step to a healthier lifestyle by not putting off that healthy habit for another day. Maybe you could explain why the fight or flight response exists 
And then because it exists, why does it actually make us think about getting out of that situation now? Oh, you sound, I have a 14 year old son and, and like you, he's very smart. <laughs> and, he, and like you, he asks a lot of why questions. You've just yes. asked the hardest question, haven't you, Mike, that I have to get speculative <laughs> here because, yeah. you know, what we're going to always, when we ask why questions, uh, in science, we end up talking about evolutionary theory, don't we? That yeah. the why question about the way our brains work have to do with adaptations. So we had recurrent challenges in the world or adaptive problems. And so uh, our bodies evolved to respond in an adaptive way. So fight or flight was that it was a, an idea of survival. Uh, if I heard something rustling in the bushes, um, I had to have a system that would react quickly to either get me out of there or get me prepared to fight. Now, what's important in to think about here is that we have a stone age brain running around in a modern world. Mm -hmm. right? Evolution laid down the formation of our brains a long, long time ago. And some of the, the stressors and stimuli that we have are quite different now. And, and most of most of your listeners have probably heard this already in terms of why is it I keep craving salty and sweet foods, stone age brain in a modern world, you know, those things weren't always available. But, and so we, we would really stock up on them when we could. Now in a world where they're full of sugar, that's not adaptive. Now the same thing's happening in a sense here in terms of what I'd speculate on the why answer. We've got this fight or flight response being used around things that aren't life-threatening anymore, mm -hmm. but we use it because it makes us feel better in the short term. So I think knowing this about ourselves is really important uh, because we can then recognize as the Buddhists do really well, we have this monkey mind, think and yeah. feel, think and feel. That's what the brain's meant to do. And we can just say, yeah, okay, I'm having these feelings but I don't need to be these feelings. I don't have to run away from these feelings. Mm -hmm. These feelings are just in my mind. And if I just let them go, I can get on with what I want to do. I don't have to react to them. This is not a tiger in a bush. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, you think about that, like there's cars going by, you don't have to run into traffic, you can just watch them go by. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it brings us to really what I want to focus on next, which is the mindfulness side. When we're able to calm our bodies down and our brains down and take these little steps, let's talk a little bit about how that leads to things like exercise and physical activity, because this time of year can be really challenging for people to get the ball rolling. And, I, and I, just as an aside, I think that the reason why people procrastinate so much about their exercise and their nutrition is because they're doing stuff they don't like, which makes it worse. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, how should people approach that? Because I think, you know, my philosophy, I am much more moderate than most when it comes to that. But why do people procrastinate with the exercise? I think we covered some of that, but what are some tips for people to prioritize that? Sure. And I'm going to take it off mindfulness and bring in some other perspectives on how we can be more effective with our intentions. Mm. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you yesterday I was driving to pick up groceries and I went past one of our local pubs. I live way up in the country, so that's a bit of a drive. Mm. But I went past this and they have one of these you know how uh, restaurants and other businesses have big billboards outside with something funny in it all the time? Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, it was only two more weeks to get ready for that before picture. It yes. took me a second to process <laughs> that. But sure enough, you know, what's funny about New Year's is it has procrastination built right in. 
So instead of changing our healthy habits now, which is, I almost said diet, but you know, there's such a problem with that, but changing the way we deal with our health, we say, well, I'm going to do that for the new year. So we're, we're, like it's got procrastination built in. It's almost a cultural procrastination. Yeah, that's my New Year's resolution. So you're really setting yourself up. But so let's talk about how you can be more successful with these New Year's resolutions. Because by the third week of January, many people will see them falling by the wayside. Totally. The, f- the first thing is we have to watch that we don't make anemic intentions. Now, you probably know the word anemic. Uh, from, uh, you know it really well because you're in a medical school, <laughs> but uh, you know, this, it, it's weak. It, it lacks vigor. If we think about it in the blood, you would say it's they're, they're lacking iron, right? <laughs> Amongst other things, but an anemic intention is just a very weak intention. That's like, uh, I'm going to exercise next week. Well, like which day, what time, like well, the week stretches out all of seven days. Uh, so it, it doesn't, it says everything and nothing all at once. So what I'd rather you think about is this, this is the work of Peter Galwitzer from New York university. He's originally a German. He's done decades of research on something called implementation intentions. So rather than making just a goal intention, I'm going to exercise. The implementation intention is in situation X, I'm going to do behavior Y. Because now we're putting a cue for our action into the environment. And that's really helpful to break habits because otherwise we're always just looking internally for what we're going to do next. But instead I say, at this time, I'm going to do this behavior and that can make a big difference, but we have to nest that into something that makes sense. Psychologists actually have fancy words for this. You know, the jargon we have event segmentation theory. Okay. So, you know, every event, like you have a morning routine, you have a bath routine. We, we all have these kind of parts of our day, which are scripted. Yeah. And so, for example, when Peter did some research uh, originally on implementation intentions, doctors that told women that they were to do self-breast exams, only 50% of women followed through, even though there's a fair bit of gravitas in terms of the doctor <laughs> saying you need to do this. Right. Yeah. But when they made an implementation intention, a hundred percent of them did it. And particularly when the implementation intention fit an event that already made sense. For example, when I get out of the shower and I'm toweling off, then I will do my exam. You see, now we have the cue for it in the environment when I'm toweling then. Now, if you said, if you'd made that um, intention uh, after dinner, I will do it. Well, it doesn't, doesn't fit the same way. You need to try to nest things into what you already do. So I'll give you a practical example for me. This was a big one in my own life that I needed to learn to floss my teeth. Really important health habit. Yeah. But, you know, I brushed my teeth uh, really uh, on a regular basis, but I, I wouldn't floss. And it was like a little kid inside of me saying, I don't like it. I don't want to. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, true. Yeah. It's, it's true. And then the other thing is I wouldn't remember too. That was a bigger thing too. I just yeah. would forget. Yeah. So I made the implementation intention. When I pick up my toothbrush, then I will put the floss on the counter. Oh, yeah. And when I put down my toothbrush, then I will pick up the floss. Now, I know some of you who regularly floss are going, you floss after your brush? That's gross. Well, I needed to do that for a little while. Yeah. And now I floss first. But what that did is it bootstrapped a new habit for me yeah. because I did the when then. And you can apply this in all parts of your life to develop new habits. So as you're looking ahead at imp- implementing, and this is why it's called implementation intentions, mm-hmm. a new health habit, whether that, that be exercise or setting a smaller plate at the table so you don't overstuff uh, yourself or uh, getting rid of snacks in the house, try this when then yeah. so that 
you have a, an outward cue of this. And you can even do that with emotional states. Like when I feel like having that uh, second cookie, then I will say, I'll just wait five minutes and right. see if that urge passes. Mm -hmm. and you can do it that way too. It doesn't have to be what you're going to do in terms of a exercise habit. It could be something internally. No, then I will wait because we, you, you, we know ourselves. I'm going to have that urge. Okay. Then I'll just wait 10 minutes or five minutes. And if I still have that urge, then I'm probably hungry. I yeah. do that all the time when I'm going to buy something. I will wait for like a month. And if I still want it, then I'll be like, okay, maybe I need to have this. Oh, the other thing I do for exercise is I exercise uh, with my partner. And when we set the alarm at 6 a.m., she's a morning person. She wakes up. And then because I set my alarm at 6 a.m., I'm up 45 minutes earlier than I would have been. So I'm like, I might as well go to the gym because now I'm awake. And so yes. it's a little action that I have that's my cue because once I'm awake, it's no point of rolling back over just in my world. And so that's always been helpful for me. The other thing I think is I always found important for setting intentions and not procrastinating was maybe if I don't have that empathy for how I'm going to be later on, I always worked out with people where exercise was really important to them. And so I did it because I was tied to their success as well. Is there something yes. behind that? Absolutely. In fact, I used you as an example in my talk. You know, I gave a talk a day after you yep. and I drew on that in particular because that really stuck with me. Uh, I, I mentioned in passing my uh, Dutch friend, uh, the philosopher Utrecht, uh, who defined procrastination as culpably unwarranted delay. He, he also wrote a wonderful paper uh, a while back. Uh, actually, it was a chapter in a book, a great book, if, if you're uh, listeners are interested, it's called The Thief of Time, Philosophical Essays on Procrastination. So if you're the philosophical bend, you might enjoy that book. But in any case, what Joel and his co-author, Joe Heath, argued is that we need extended will. And, and I, I said to Joel, what does that mean? He said, well, if I asked you what's three times three, you'd probably immediately say nine. If I asked you what's 486 times 237, you might say, I can't do that in my head. But if I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil or a calculator, you could. That's extended cognition. You're extending your ability to think by using tools. So why is it we try to treat willpower as if we can't extend it by having environmental affordances? And your example is a perfect example of that. You know, I would never let a friend down if I said, okay, I'll meet you at the gym, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I know that about myself, but I could easily say to myself, that's 4.30, I've had a lousy day. I didn't sleep well last night. I'm not going to exercise today. Mm -hmm. But instead, you tie yourself to this friend and you, yeah. and you have that commitment. And what we're doing in a strange sort of way is leveraging our self-control. We know things about ourselves. In fact, some people can say, well, if I don't exercise, I'm not having that dinner on Friday night. Yeah. And I love having dinner Friday night. And we know perversely, we could actually do that, withhold that. Now, some yeah. of you are thinking, I could never do that. Okay, don't use that strategy. Use the one Mike said instead, which is, you know, find social supports because you become more accountable mm -hmm. because you en you enjoy it more, first of all, right? You're going to be with someone that you have fun with yeah. and, and you're going to feed off each other. I mean, back in, in the late 1800s, some of the early social psychologists showed that people rode bikes more quickly when they were competing against others, right? <laughs> There's a social facilitation effect. So this is known as extended will. And you can do that in so many ways. One last example is this. Uh, Joe and Joel argue that you need to make ladders to make the things that are easiest to do harder, like the stuff that you just always go to, and shoots to make the things that you find difficult easier. So, for example, your example about going for a run in, or exercising in the morning, not only do you 
harness that to your partner, but you put your exercise clothes right next to your bed. Yeah. So it's, there's no hassle. Like you're not going looking for them. There's no yeah. excuses. They're right there and off you go. So, and, and at the same time, you make the other things that are like your phone, it's off. So you'd have to wait for it to boot. It's yeah. somewhere else in the house, right? Yeah. The things. Yeah. And, and I can't say enough about that, right? Yeah. Like in this world, we have to shut off our devices or they're just going to own us. That's Dr. Tim Pitchell, professor at Carleton University and author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. He's helping us take the first step to a healthier lifestyle by not putting off that healthy habit for another day. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Tim Pitchell, professor and founder of the Procrastination Group at Carleton University and the author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. He's helping us take the first step to a healthier lifestyle by not putting off that healthy habit for another day. It takes a while to get any new habit ingrained, especially when you're trying to do things that you really don't want to do. How, how do people give themselves forgiveness while they're learning and stumbling through the process? Oh, I'm so happy you asked me that question because I, I, I actually uh, introduced you to my colleague. I have a colleague at Carleton University named Michael Wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's W-O-H-L instead of your name, W-A-H-L. <laughs> and, and Michael Wall, the one from Carleton, prolific researcher, wonderful man. He came to me uh, back in, it must have been 2010, I think, or 2009 and said, you know, we should study forgiveness, self-forgiveness and procrastination. I said, oh yeah, we could, Michael, but I think it'll be forgive and forget, right? He said, oh, don't be so quick to judge and darn if he wasn't correct. That what we found in a nutshell is we were studying first year students as many of us do on campus. And we were using uh, exam preparation as our, our focus. And so some students procrastinated studying for, for the first exam and did poorly. And amongst the group, some of them forgave themselves for doing that and some didn't. And lo and behold, those who forgave themselves for procrastinating and doing poorly didn't procrastinate as much on their second exam. Mm -hmm. But those who didn't forgive themselves continued the procrastination. It was opposite of what I said. So I said, Michael, okay, you're right, but how do I make sense of that? And he said, well, imagine if you and Mike, and I'm talking about you now, yeah. uh, Dr. Dr. Wall, uh, <laughs> What if you had had a transgression against each other? Like you didn't show up for the interview, like you said you would. Right. What would what would be the uh, the motivation? Well, it'd be avoidance. I'd want to avoid you, Mike, and you probably might want to avoid me. Yeah. And he said, yeah. He said, now what happens if Mike forgives Tim? What would be the motivation then? It would be approach. He said, yeah, that's pretty classic of what forgiveness does. And he said, but with procrastination, the transgression is against the self. Mm -hmm. And until we forgive ourselves, we can't move on, right? And so uh, the question you asked, though, is the important one. I had to give that as background for everyone to say, yeah, we found that self-forgiveness is important. How do you do that? Well, first of all, listen to yourself. Are you, would you say anything you're saying to yourself to a friend? Because we often are harsh critics of ourselves. Yeah. And if we listen to that inner dialogue, we think, whoa, would you say that to another person? Then stop saying it to yourself. But more importantly to that, or foundationally to that, is this notion of common humanity, right? So we have to accept that, you know, we're all in this together. I mean, you brought us there right from the beginning, which I really like, Mike, about the existential nature of time. Like, <laughs> like this is not a dress rehearsal. This is your life. Yeah. Right? And you don't even know how much time you're going to get. And so you have to accept that. That's the ground of one's being. 
and say, yeah, it's not going to be perfect. And I'm sometimes going to make mistakes. And that's why it's okay to have two steps forward and one step back. And that's an important thing to remember in January mm-hmm. as you're, you're trying to make new health habits. I, I said I was going to exercise three times a week and I only got out once this week. Ah, celebrate the fact you got out once next week and think about what implementation intention might I make to make sure I get out a second time or how am I going to leverage some self-control or uh, uh, harness a relationship to make it more likely that next week I do better than I did this week, but I did one, right? And we have to forgive ourselves and not constantly focus on the negative because again, the way the brain has evolved we're really good at focusing on the negative because our ancestors who didn't, they got eaten. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. You know, so, it, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, that's okay. almost like the benefit of, of playing sports as a kid that I, you know, you learn that anything that's challenging requires practice as opposed to having this, you know, I didn't get it right the first time. I just might mm-hmm. as well give it up. Remember that Muppet or the uh, thing on Sesame <laughs> street. I'll never get it. And the guy hit his head against the piano just because he, <laughs> and then he would practice and he would get it. And I yeah. think that's really important in particular when it comes to health habits, because there's just so much benefit that comes from the stuff we were talking about today. It's ironic that we come to the, at the end there, because what's going to feed all of this are those health habits because they feed our well-being. And as we feed our well-being, we're more likely to want to sit. We're more likely to want to exercise. So we need to bootstrap that. And in a sense, you and I, Mike, have been talking about how do we bootstrap that? Some of it is knowledge about this discrepancy between present and future self. Some of it is understanding that, yeah, we've got this amygdala hijack going on. We're going to try to avoid. Some of it is realizing I can have emotions without being emotions. Some of it is the way I frame my intentions. You see now as listeners, you've got this toolkit of ideas that you can bring to this in your own way to fit your own life to make your intentions more effective. I love it. It's like one plus one equals 10. It's- <laughs> <laughs> you are, yeah, you're, yeah, it's good. I love that. Well, yeah. I think, you know, I, I want to extend a huge thank you for taking the time. I love having people like yourself with such amazing expertise on a topic that can share to our listeners that we would never have access to. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's I'm really, it was wonderful to meet you. Yeah, and it's, I, it's fun. I got to tell you a funny story because when I got up to speak, I talked to the audience that we had with us about my talk. And typically I warn them that sometimes I talk really quickly. And I said that, you know, <laughs> sometimes I warn people that I talk really quickly. And I said that yesterday we experienced Dr. Michael Wall. And I said, yeah. I don't even get gusts to those speeds. So you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> and but then I went on to compliment you in terms of yeah. what an amazing educator you are yeah. and how much we all learned from you. So I was I was very much looking forward to our interview today and awesome. it didn't disappoint. Thank you, Mike. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and I'm sure our paths will cross again in the future. Yes, I look forward to that very much. I'd like to get back up to the rock. Thank you to Dr. Tim Pitchell for joining me today. Who would have thought that procrastination is really an emotional regulation problem? The key is to take the focus off your emotions and turn that into positive action. We can do this by calming our emotions and foiling its attempt to hijack us. We can be mindful and we can forgive ourselves for making mistakes. I hope that you can apply some of these tips as you venture down whatever wellness path you take. You might find the discomfort of taking that first tiny step is a lot less than the discomfort of not taking action at all. Future self will likely thank you too. Well, thanks for joining me today. That's our show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your 
VOCM.